The Platforming Our Artists podcast series is supported by Torch as part of the Humanities Cultural Programme. Hello and welcome to the third instalment of our Chameleon Artist podcast and today we're so happy to have Simran Opal with us. Simran was one of the uh, poets on our original production of Medea. Hello Simran, how are you doing? Hello Shiv, I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm not at all bad, really, really glad to have you on. Just to tell our viewers a bit about you, you studied classics at Oxford, obviously that's where we met. And whilst there, not only did you work on Medea with us, you were absolutely a theatre maker uh, and you are now the the, the, the founder of um, Coriander Theatre, which is something I'm sure we're going to talk about later on. You're also a performance poet. Obviously, you're, you're commissioned for us right now, but you have had other recent commissions from the English Heritage, from Sony, from the Barbican Galleries. And alongside all of this, you're a political organiser and you currently work for a local anti-poverty charity where you live in Hackney. And my sort of favourite fact about you is you're also a, a yoga teacher. Uh, and yeah, that's a whole whole different story that maybe we'll touch on later. But yeah, so so glad to have you on. So glad to be here. So let's start. Let's jump straight in. Coriander Theatre, great name, great story. What made you found it? What's the story? What's your mission? Obviously, an incredible group of people running it. All queer people of colour. Let's let's have a little chat about that. Talk to me about Coriander. Yes, absolutely. I would love to. So in many ways, the seed of Coriander Theatre was um, that very same production of Medea that um, I was so lucky enough to work with you on um, back when we were studying together. And I think it was seeing that production, that extraordinary, truly extraordinary all-game production um, was like such an inspiration to me and so many other people in that um, theatre-making community or scene. Um, and so some of the theatre that I'd done before, um, all with my very dear friend, Zad, um, we went on with perhaps a more like community building um, approach towards art making and theatre making. Because we'd really seen the power that could um, come from that. And when we graduated uni and moved to London, we wanted to like, keep taking it further. And we found that so many of the artists around us and just the people in our lives, really, who many of whom happen to be artists in different disciplines or producers, musicians, whatever, um, were also queer people of colour. And we saw all the resources out there, the funding is hard um, as it is to access. And we thought, well, we can do that. We can use the, the skills that we have to access that funding, access those resources, and um, use those like very real material things to um, support queer um, artists of color, um, all kinds of politically engaged artists, um, and make some amazing art together. It's an incredible mission, and I'm so glad that you guys were inspired by the production and certainly did that and put on productions at Oxford and, and continue now. But I, I've got to ask, Coriander Theatre, Coriander, what's the, what's the story there? What's the name? Yes, um, so I, I'm such a fan of the name. We went through many, many iterations of the name. For a long period of time, I was really deeply committed to something like Yogurt and Rice Collective or something, until uh, a dear friend, call this out being like, well, number one, you're not really a collective if you are a theatre company. <laughs> and number two, this makes it sound like you manufacture those like Muller yogurt pots. pots you know? Yeah. Um, so we, we took the note and um, instead we reflected a little bit. We loved the idea of staying connected to food. So much of art that Zad and I make for some reason focuses on food. Right? Just I guess we just like to eat, we like to make food. There's that connection to cultural heritage too. 
Um, and we were thinking about how one shared element of North Indian Punjabi food and um, kind of like Mediterranean Arab Lebanese food in Baghdad's heritage is fresh coriander, like kind of thrown on top of everything. We also particularly like that detail that, you know how some people have that like, genetic predisposition that means they just can't enjoy coriander. We kind of like that because we were like, okay, some people might not like us as a theater company of queer people of color. And if they don't like us, then that's their problem. <laughs> I'm certainly a fan of the coriander theater queer people of color, but I am one of those people who is, um, doesn't like coriander genetically tasting. Oh, so. But love the theatre company. Um, and I think it, it, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, what is it like being in that, in that space? All of you being queer people of colour, I mean, just talk to me about how it feels to create in that space and, and, and the experience that you've had. I mean, you've, you've done numerous things. You've gone to Berlin. You've, you've, you've really had experience with, within, with this theatre company. And we'd love to hear just a bit about how that is and, and how that feels. Yes, absolutely. And in many ways, it's been absolutely extraordinary. I remember when we were in Berlin, um, it was part of this um, theatre festival for kind of like oppressed and political theatre makers around the world. And there were all these amazing people from all different backgrounds, um, from, from really a fairly big geographical spread. Um, and I remember at one point we were in, just, just our company, we're in the kind of converted chapel off the side of this it used to be a church, now it's like a progressive theater um, venue of some sort. And I remember in this very like sacred feeling space, reciting this like fairly queer, like revoicing, like translation of a beautiful piece of North Indian um, devotional poetry, kind of ecstatic poetry. Um, and one of my, this wonderful friend of mine, Shiva was there dancing. Shiva is classically trained um, as well as a Bollywood dancer. And Shiva was there like dancing and dancing and dancing and like entering this state of um, this kind of like state of almost like mystic love, right? Like so part, such a rich part of um, our shared cultural heritage and that, that spiritual aspect that, that we were um, interested in. And then someone else, um, our friend Magda was, was playing the drum and this, this energy built and built and built and we could access this profoundly vulnerable part of ourselves that we wouldn't have been able to do in um, so many other theatre spaces. At the same time, there are always difficulties. Um, queer people of colour are so often disproportionately affected um, by so many of the, the worst forms of exploitation and um, violence in our society today and managing those things, managing the, the potentials for violence and trauma and um, insecure housing and lack of um, stable income. Managing all those things as a theatre company, as a community, is hard. Um, always hard, for sure. I think that, I mean, I mean, that all sounds amazing. And God, I wish I was there in the Berlin church. But um, I think that some, what you know to the end is also really important. And I think that so often we, and we should be celebrating these spaces. And I think people from the outside look in and think like, wow, they've created the space. Wow. But I think that it's so often forgotten how difficult those spaces are to create. It's not just a case of throwing a bunch of queer people or people of colour or queer people of colour in a room together. It's got to be nurtured. You've got to put a lot of time and energy into it. It comes with a lot of difficulties and hiccups and, and, and hang-ups and funding, even things just like finding funding and finding people who can get behind the idea are, are difficult enough. And then when you're in that space and trying to create safety and, and a nurturing environment throughout these creators of colour, I think that it sounds great from the outside 
Um, but believe me, I appreciate and know the work that it takes to actually to successfully make that space and then use that space to create, to create work, to create art, to uh, even if even if it's just to create, you know, relationships. It, it's a really it, it sounds a lot easier than it is. For sure. Um, but to jump to something, I think, I mean, we're both um, South Asian, we're both Indian, we're both North Indian. And my dad was born and raised, I was born in Southall. My dad was, uh, was, was uh, emigrated to Southall at the age of like seven from Kenya. And there are a lot of Punjabis in Southall. We, we grew up with a bunch of Punjabis in our life. And the Gujarati and Punjabi community has a real tie bond in this country. Uh, and I would love to hear sort of a bit more specifically about your your experience. You know, I'm a I'm a North Indian, you know, gay man. I would love to hear about your experience, particularly as a sort of Indian Indian queer person. Mm, absolutely. Um, I had no idea that you were born in Southall and your your, your dad spent um, so much time in Southall too. My um my grandparents worked in Southall. Um, my parents worked in Southall. I then worked in Southall. I grew up in Ealing. Um, in fact, my my um, my grandparents on that side were the first South Asian doctors in the UK. Wow. Based in Southall, of course. Yeah, I was um, born at Ealing General Hospital. Uh, pretty pretty typical. <laughs> pretty typical. In a way, love that. Yeah. yeah, it's so it's so incredible feeling <laughs> that like connection. But yeah, Southall is like so much the heart of like everything I love about London as well. Absolutely. And especially like to bring it back to food. My God, when this is all over, Shiv, we should go south all and just like eat our way it's down the high our street. way through the high street, through the boring exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nothing else to do. But um, yes, like particularly like as like a South Asian queer person, a Punjabi queer person, um, person a queer person of Sikh heritage, maybe um, like a queer desi. Um, like, what does that mean in the UK? And especially as like a non-binary person or a queer person or um, the person that I am. Oh. And I suppose it's been like a real trajectory, I think. It's been a real journey in it. Um, a lot of like real, very intense suffering, um, a lot of um, quite violent um, and traumatizing experiences um, over the years. Uh, and I think at the heart of it, a kind of like a destabilizing of the sense of self. I think that's one of the, the things that runs through all of those um, experiences. I feel very lucky to be where I am now, which is able to hold these things quite lightly most of the time, not to kind of deny any of that sadness or, or suffering, but to, to recognize that there is like a lightness and a joy and an ability to like move with it and through it and in celebration. I, I think often what, what comes to mind for me is a slight sense of Freedom, perhaps, maybe chaos is a better word. There's the sense of like not completely understanding what it means for me to be this person who I am in this society as it is. Um, I don't really know. And I kind of love that. I, I'm happy to just kind of poodle through my life. Like, yes, do I have I been working on a whole bunch of poems which are like queer mystic poets from the subcontinent. Like, yes, have I been taking other poems from the subcontinent and just making them even more gay than they already are? Like, yes, and these are things that are so important to me. Like, they're really not just my art making, but part of the fiber of my being. Like, these poems, these ancestors, right? Like, they're part of me. Um, but they're not who I am. 
their kind of fibers within this slightly confusing, loose-edged, kind of porously boundaried mess that I see myself as being. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that I mean I think that's you know completely fair, and I I certainly you connect said bits of that as a. I think that what I've always said uh, we talk a lot about at Chameleon is you know there is no role models or very few of you know Indian queer people. You have the guy from Queer Eye, and <laughs> in It's a Sin, which is an incredible series. I mean, one of the one of the main characters mm-hmm. is is Indian. That was I remember when 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 watching when when you know watching the first episode suddenly seeing someone that sort of. I was completely shocked. Russell T. Davis has, has done an incredible job with that series. But on the whole, I mean, growing up, th- these examples, Queer Eye and It's a Center from like the last three, four years, like growing up, they're just, I never saw myself on screen, on stage, on mm. film. And I think that that really has an incredibly detrimental effect. And I do think that absolutely through the work that we're doing at Chameleon, through what you're doing at Coranda, and I'm sure numerous, numerous other activists um, are trying to get those stories out there. And, and these are just, I'm sure these two examples are just the beginning of numerous stories that, that we'll be that we'll be talking about that. But on the flip side, to try and make it a positive, um, unlike, I suppose, other people of colour who, not other people of colour, sorry, other queer people who maybe have had role models or have these like weird stereotypes and things. Um, we just don't sort of exist in a way that we're like now creating our own existence, our own story, our own narrative. And we get to be part of creating that space on stage, on film, on, uh, in, in our communities. And I think that the positive from it is that like, I do feel very free and very, I don't, I mean, I don't have a role model to follow things. And I think it's really important that younger queer Indians do, but at the same time, the, the, the blessing of where we're at now, if we can find one is that we do just sort of have this Liberty. And I think that, um, mm. you know, the great thing is we should try create that liberty also by making it easier for the people that, that come after us. But we, we can look at that as a positive of not being put into any box or stereotype or film character, or whatever. I mean, I've been called the guy from queer. I think, I don't know his name, Tan or something numerous times, but um, you know, other than that, I've been pretty free of just doing kind of whatever I'd like. And I think that's, it's a very interesting space to be in, I think as a, as a queer Indian. Uh, in mm, the UK. Absolutely. I love how, how you say that about the, like the freedom that comes from not having a model, like a role model. I think that's so beautifully um, observed. And the way that even celebrating that freedom, we can still make it easier for those who come after yeah, that. I think that's so beautifully put. It's absolutely part of our responsibility. But to think about it, we, we had an interesting conversation before the podcast started about visibility. And, and this is where I think it's very interesting. I mean, I'm very vocal about visibility and, and talk a lot about it, but you, you said something that, that that sort of stuck with me, I think we should talk about, which is a different reaction to the idea of visibility and, and something that I think is really not spoken about. And I, w- I would love to, yeah, see if you expand on any of the things we were sort of talking about before we started recording. Mm, absolutely. Um, I, I was really struck in that moment when you, you mentioned visibility. I was so surprised actually that this, like I felt a real sense of discomfort arise inside me around that word. And I was, as I say, surprised by it, because of course, uh, visibility feels like such a wonderful thing so often, right? I've had beautiful experiences of um, people responding to my work, young queer people, young queer people of colour, um, say like after a gig, being like, oh my gosh, like that was amazing. Like I didn't know about, um, I have this one poem, which is about um, Guru Nanak 
meeting this like gender non-conforming femme. Um, and it's drawn on like a, a Sikh manuscript that didn't actually happen. But the fact that the, 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 the trans um, queer Sufi was actually lived a few hundred years before, but by telling stories and going up on a stage with, you know, like, you know, with a full face on and like some very like, let's just say with a lot of mesh and <laughs> like the least like kind of mask or, or, or cis or straight presenting kind of stage aesthetic that I, I felt able to embrace. Um, there's such a celebration in that, right? And telling a story about queerness in your like your ancestry and your heritage. So why do I have this discomfort? I think it's to do with safety and lack of safety and vulnerability and danger. Um, I've, like many, many um, queer people of colour, um, like many people of um, so many experiences, I've experienced harassment and abuse and things like that. I think there's a way in which, of course, like visibility, it has those two sides, right? It has celebration and community at the one side, and then it has harassment and abuse and trauma and the damage to one's sense of self, the damage to one's ability to, to be in the world and be well in the world um, alongside each other. I think recently I've been trusting the robustness of myself. And I think perhaps the more that I lean into that sense of robustness in myself and robustness in my communities, right? Like surrounded by all these people who like I share strength with, perhaps then visibility becomes much easier. Visibility as something collective rather than visibility as something individual. I think that what you say is so important because I think it's so easy to forget the effect of being the visible one, of being the one that does the fight. Even in the last year where we've had these racial reckonings and, 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 and things have started to come to the fore always and so often, the majority looks at the minority and goes, so what do we do? So tell us, and even when it's well-meaning, even when it's tell us what you need, tell us what you want, so much of the onus falls on the person who's just experienced all the things that they've recognized, that it is a really tough space. And I think that it's not this weird expectation for every gay man to fight the gay fight and every brown and black and, and, and person of color to, to fight their fight. I mean, we're also just people who want to do things and have experienced things and are living our own lives. Yeah. It's such an interesting nuance that is, that is even, even when it's not forgotten, it's not, I don't think it's really, people say, oh, of course, you know, you have the incredible Rene Edo Lodge's um, Why I'm Not Talking to White People About Race. I mean, the conversations are had, and yet it doesn't really seem yet to sink into people that it's not always easy. It's not always what you want to do. And being the visible one is often as difficult as not having someone visible on a personal level. I, I think it's, it's a real nuance. Uh, and I appreciate you, you you sort of being so honest and talking about that because it's a difficult thing that I find it hard often to say that myself because I also don't want people to think that I, I'm not invested in those things. I'm not interested. I do want to make the change. But some mornings, everyone wakes up not wanting to be the one that's looked at, pointed at, you know. And I, it, it's a really it's a really tough nuance. And I think even between us within our own communities, I think I often turn to Fran or someone else who's working with me is, you know, we, we've got to do, we're pushing off some of that responsibility because you just don't feel it that day. And we've all got to be sensitive to, to the, the, the burden of, of, of trying to make this change as much as it's an extremely positive change that obviously as two people who have created production companies all about it are committed to changing. 
doesn't necessarily make that something you want to do every day of your life or that it's easy to do every day of your life, even if you are doing it every day of your life. And I, and I appreciate you being so honest about this complex relationship with visibility that I think so many of us have, but we don't speak about. Mm, absolutely. I think there are two things that come to mind there for me. And the first is really about art making. Like I see art making is such a way that we can reclaim our humanity, right? Um, and when you were saying like, I don't want every day to be an educator. I don't want every day to be in the fight. I don't want every day to be organizing. Some days I want to just watch Netflix and do nothing. Some days I just want to make art. I just want to like be a human, like channel this like weird creative thing we have inside us. Um, I think that links us too to like ideas of community and solidarity, right? Like, how can we stand very really in solidarity with each other? Um, you know, with people of color in this country experiencing such different things, right? As um, Indians in particular, we um, have access to a lot more privilege than say uh, Bengalis or Pakistanis, um, let alone um, all other communities in terms of like, income and housing, um, the disproportionate state violence against black people here across the world. Um, how can we, like deal with our exhaustion and also like continue to fight for ourselves and all the people around us. And I think it's that exactly what you were saying about like leaning on our friends and being like, hey, I can't do this today. Can you do this? Like today I rest, tomorrow I labor. Um, really coming together in solidarity in that way. Maybe even perhaps through a community organization, through a trade union of yoga teachers, even which is um, something a little relevant to my life. <laughs> do you talk a little bit about that i think that's really interesting and um, we'd love to hear about what you're yes very um uh, very briefly even um i've been really lucky to be involved with a brilliant group of yoga teachers over the last couple of months forming um the uk's first trade union of yoga teachers um and we're part of the independent workers union of great britain who've done these amazing things um organizing uber drivers and delivery drivers and other precarious like gig economy workers, um, really like reclaiming those rights that some of the most um, exploited workers, um, gig economy workers, um, precarious workers in this country, in this country um, have been deprived of. Yoga teachers actually have a pretty terrible time of it. And um, coming together in the framework of a union and like really organizing like together, like really, really doing this in this like so closely interwoven way has been such an amazing experience fighting for workers rights for better material conditions and doing that as a collective uh, that's absolutely i mean i didn't i have to say that's not something i thought about i mean incredible and i will tell people that there is an article coming out did you say the telegraph tomorrow <laughs> um, in indie voices the, the independence online oh independent online there we go tomorrow coming out about that so do keep your eyes on that but let's come back to uh let's come back to you i mean uh, let's come back to your work actually is something I want to speak about here because just just thinking about what we've been talking about this 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 whole podcast um all centers around I mean, you said two very interesting things uh first of all recognizing our sort of limited visibility position as as, as queer Indians but also recognizing our very unique position within the UK I mean very few countries have a sort of uh, being South 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 Asian, being an Indian in the UK is such a weird position because obviously you're the you're a minority, but you're the biggest minority. And as you so so well said, I mean we we experience privileges that that so many of the other minorities. I mean you mentioned um, 
some names of people from Bangladesh are just our neighbors in India, but nowhere near uh, experience the same level of privilege we do in this country. I mean, it's so much nuance. But on the flip side, you know, we we don't appear in TV as much. We don't appear in film as much. I mean, it's such a complicated conversation. Um, but another thing that you speak about in your work that I think is really refreshing um, is, is how we perhaps belong in another way. And I'm just going to read a little little snippet of, of, of your poem. And I'd love for you to talk, talk a bit about that. Um, it, this is from your piece from the English Heritage, which is, which is going to be published. So we can't, we can't say a lot from it, but I'll just, I'll just read this little line. It says, did my ancestor see their ancestor remembering healers sitting far from the church by water? I asked the rocks if they are my ancestors. They say, yes, of course. I think it's a really interesting snippet. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what that means and your, your unique perspective here, I think. Yes, thank you so much for bringing that snippet of poetry into the space. It's always so odd to hear someone um, um, uh, read your poems. It's so, so beautifully done, too. Um, yes, I was so glad that this is the part of the poem that, that, that maybe spoke to you in, in a way that meant you wanted to draw it out. I mean, this piece is in um, part of a wider project about like exploring history in, in like in writing and in poetry. Um, it was overseen by Malika Booker, an incredible poet, um, and Jacob Sandler is both incredible black British poets. Um, how do um, we as people of color, how did they as um, black British poets relate to like the countryside in English heritage sites? And there's been so much writing about the way in which people of color are reluctant to go in the countryside because of the increased chances of racism you're going to experience there, right? Um, and the way in which um, even sites, English heritage sites erase the history of um, people of colour, erase wake working class histories, or erase queer histories. And this project was part of changing that, um, run by English heritage uh, and Malika um, and Jacob. And this poem was so much about like, reclaiming a spirituality of the land. Like, even if my blood ancestors aren't from this land, I have grown up on this land. I've walked every step of my life on this land. Even if I hadn't, this can still be, be a land that is, that is part of my, um, that I'm somehow connected to in terms of lineage. And I think of these um, healers sitting far from the church. I'm um, not that I have any opposition to, to churches or, or the church. I say, but away from institutions and by the water, like in nature and somehow connected to some like naturally, uh, some naturally emerging spirituality. This idea that the people sitting on this land for thousands of years, um, celebrating the coming of spring and the turning of the season for my ancestors, the sense that the, the land that fed my mother, that fed um, me, right, that, that constitutes my bones, is somehow my ancestor too. I ask the rocks if they are my ancestors. They say yes, of course. I think that's so interesting because the other thing that has been encouraging to hear people talk about and, and, and should talk about more is how, you know, as much as people are, are really um, understanding and relating to their own heritage and, and, you know, I think a lot about 
how I am. But I always say, I've said it on this podcast before, my family haven't lived in India for 100 years. My mom was born in Malawi. My dad was born in Kenya. My grandmother was born in Madagascar. They all came here at different times. My dad came here and had school here. My mom only came here for education at university level. Like this idea that there is any one place of belonging is, is so ridiculous, even for people who aren't, aren't people of colour. People come from such a varied space. And I was born in London. I went to university 40 minutes away from London. I'm, you know, there now, like, there's there's nowhere it's home for me other than London in any real way and I think it's so interesting and I, I really love the way that you brought in the ancestry in the area that I know in the area that we are you know there's there's a sense of us also trying to not even reclaim the space but just be in the space that that we have been in all our lives I think that's really interesting it, it really did speak to me um that particular line because it was refreshing to think about not only think about this weird immigrant connection I have to to a different country to many different countries but to think about my re- my real connection to the to the country that I was born in the country that I've been educated in my first language the language I speak best and the thing I know most about I mean I certainly feel a foreigner when going to India and Malawi the only place I'm weirdly not a foreigner though of course I am an immigrant is is London and I think it's a really interesting conversation I think there's a lot more nuance and art to be made about that particular that particular feeling as well and learning how we can combine both our heritage as wherever we come from and our real sense of identity as being part of the very fabric of 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 the countries that we were also born in and raised in if they weren't our own to begin with Mm. so that's so 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 well put sometimes for me i have this thought that we have millions of ancestors we have infinite ancestors and we I think if I wasn't queer I wouldn't have taken such a like an explored like my queer I have queer ancestors in this country and around the world who have no bloodline connection to me and it's somehow that 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 freedom of of understanding what an ancestor is that I think um, opened up the possibility for me that I can have ancestors in Punjab I can have ancestors in Southall, I can have ancestors in Ireland. I don't know, Um, clouds of ancestors. I think think it's really refreshing actually. Um, And I I, I don't know, sort of it's a sense of, uh, sense of finding belonging in places where often I think it feels like you shouldn't or or can't or couldn't and it's great Mm -hmm. to find that now I mean look we've come to somehow we've come to half an hour and it's been so great speaking to you I could continue speaking to you for forever I'm as I said people watch out for the article tomorrow I'm sure that Coriander Theatre is is going to be making moves in the next I mean whenever coronavirus lets us of course but soon (laughs) so keep an eye on that and obviously you'll be tied to us for the foreseeable future, obviously working on Medea, working on the spoken word. Thank you so much for, for being a part of today and, and really being very honest and open about, about your experiences and, and how you're feeling uh, feeling right now. That is difficult to do. We haven't actually seen each other since this whole, whole process started. I mean, it's all been via Zoom. So yeah, thank you so much for, for contributing um, to this podcast today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and hopefully catch you and the rest of the Medea team down south or as soon as this is all over. <laughs>